Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing this quarter's MCU book club selection, Small Boats and Daring Men. In an effort to extend educational opportunities to Marines and other interested national security professionals, MCU has decided to host quarterly book clubs. We crowdsourced book club selection over on Twitter, and we're getting ready to have our first discussion July 23rd at the Quantico campus of Marine Corps University. Marines in Okinawa are also gathering to discuss the book, and we'll continue that discussion throughout the month over on Twitter and Facebook. This podcast will air about the time of our initial meeting, so if you're listening to this and you're interested, read the book and join our discussion over on social media. If you'd like to host a chapter of the MCU Book Club somewhere other than Quantico or Okinawa, we would be delighted to support your efforts. Just let us know what you're doing, and we'll do whatever we can. Our guest today is Commander Benjamin Armstrong. Commander Armstrong is a permanent military professor and former search and rescue and special warfare helicopter pilot who deployed to the 4th, 5th, and 6th fleets in support of multiple amphibious ready groups, marine air ground task forces, and global operations. Ashore, he flew as an advanced flight instructor and served in the Pentagon as a strategist and staff officer in the Office of the Secretary of the Navy. He joined the faculty at the Naval Academy History Department during the fall term of 2016. In addition to his teaching and scholarship, Commander Armstrong serves as the faculty rep to the men's swimming and diving team and the director of the McMullen Naval History Symposium. He's an alumnus of the Naval Academy and has his Ph.D. from King's College, London. And in addition to the books we're discussing today, Commander Armstrong has edited two books— 21st Century Sims, Innovation, Education, and Leadership for the Modern Era, and 21st Century Mahan, Sound Military Conclusions for the Modern Era, both from Naval Institute Press. Commander Armstrong, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me today. Before we start our discussion on naval irregular warfare, tell us a little bit about your background working with the Marine Corps. So your bio mentions time supporting the MAGTAF. Was that the best experience of your life? (laughs) <laughs> as all folks associated with the Marine Corps must assume, right? Um, <laughs> but actually, yeah, it was. So I'm a, a search and rescue and special warfare helicopter pilot by trade. Uh, I began my career flying HH-46 Deltas and transitioned into the MH-60 Sierra once the Navy created those. Those are, those are two types of helicopters. My entire deploying career has been in support of or with the Marine Corps. Uh, So I deployed on every big deck amphib stationed on the East Coast at one point or another during my time in the fleet. And I worked with a number of Marine Expeditionary Units and Special Purpose MAGTAFs, everything from OIF-1, the invasion of Iraq, through the uh, Liberian and Libyan civil wars to teaming up with Marines and the DEA to hunt for drug lords in the Caribbean. So it's been a, a fascinating fleet career. But yeah, it was very much, I've always been a part of the blue-green team. I've always been a part of the amphib fleet, right down to my time as a flight instructor, uh, where our our HT squadrons in Pensacola are joint squadrons. They have instructors and students from the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard all in the same unit. Huh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So this might help answer the next question, which is, when we had the vote to pick the initial selection for our inaugural book club... Small Boats and Daring Men won by a landslide. I mean, it wasn't even close. And I feel, I want to say, kind of bad, maybe, in that I intentionally included some of the books from the Commandant's reading list 
because I thought maybe book club folks would like to kill two birds with one stone. They could read for the book club. They could knock something out on the reading list. But no, they wanted your book. The title is slick. I mean, that's a, I don't know how long it took you to come up with that title, but well done. But what is it about the book that you think is appealing to Marines? So I guess I should start before we go any further and make sure that I put the disclaimer in here because I am both a professor at the Naval Academy and a, a, uh, an active duty officer. So the opinions I express today are mine alone and offered in my academic capacity and do not reflect the United States Naval Academy, the United States Navy, or any government agencies, policies, or positions. So disclaimer aside, why is this an appealing book? You know, I wonder if in a way it's, it's related to my own process in writing the book. When I started thinking about pursuing a PhD and deciding what I was going to research and study eventually as I wrote a dissertation, something that I kept coming back to was trying to explain my own service to myself. Right? I, I am not someone who has served in the surface fleet or on aircraft carriers kind of projecting power inland in big Navy ways or planning for ships to fight ships in kind of classical naval battle kind of ways. I have been deployed doing things that are on the other side of naval affairs. They are not the wartime side necessarily, but sometimes the peacetime side, the constabulary missions. Uh, I've been on detachments which conducted counter-piracy uh, missions, retook a pirated vessel with the Royal Marines in the Red Sea, conducted search and rescue, as I said, conducted counter-smuggling and high-value target missions in the Caribbean, all kinds of different things that don't, they don't match up with that big Navy paradigm, that ships fighting ships, fleets fighting fleets narrative of our naval past. And so in part, my effort with the book is an effort to try and understand the roots of the very things that I did as a helicopter pilot and as a naval officer working with the Marines, working with the naval special warfare community. And maybe that's part of why it's appealing, because I approach the subject, yes, as a historian, yes, with a, a deep and a, an abiding belief in the need for the archival research and to you know, travel to all the archives and, and get into those papers from the era, but also with an eye to the fact that this information can help inform our contemporary world and it can help us maybe understand ourselves as a Navy and a Marine Corps. So this leads into the, the next question that I've got, and it's something that Heather Venable had asked over on Twitter so the book focuses on the period from the Revolutionary War to 1840. And that's a deeply interesting period, I would think, historically. But tease out some of those lessons that are relevant for Marines today. I mean, the age of sail is far behind us. And as, as Heather Venable noted over on Twitter, everyone is talking about AI. Everyone's talking about A2D2, about cyber. What does this book add to those discussions? Why would I invest time to read pretty serious, not recent history, but, but centuries-old history, in order to be a better warfighter now? So the glib answer to the way Dr. Venable phrased the question, the glib answer is nothing. It has nothing to do with those things, right? We're talking about the age of sale. We're talking about age of sale history. It's not AI. It's not cyber. It's not contemporary. And so, you know, on the surface, the answer is, it, it, no, it doesn't inform those things. That's not the purpose of studying history. 
But when we take a couple steps back and look more broadly, of, of course, studying history informs our view of the contemporary world. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of Sir Michael Howard's, at the end of Sir Michael Howard's lecture turned into an essay, The Use and Abuse of Military History. He quotes um, Burkhart saying that history does not make us clever in the moment. It makes us wise for forever. History is not there to to give us a checklist of the thing in the contemporary world that we need to make sure we do. By reading history, we can start to build ideas of the foundations of the world we live in and how to think about things, not necessarily in a new way, but with new information or or information that's new to us. You know, we can go back to Clausewitz, right? We can talk about the difference between the character and the nature of war. You know, oftentimes studying history, especially history like this, that's two centuries old, it may not help us very much with the character of our contemporary wars, but it very much should help us understand the nature of our conflicts and the things that we face. And so I'll give you the big kind of macro nature of naval warfare thing that this book tries to examine. And that is the question of how do we conceive of naval strategies? Traditionally, we teach that naval strategies in kind of a, in a traditional way, in a 19th, 18th, 19th century way, are a bipolar concept. It's either guerre de course or guerre de scadre, right? So it's either wars by raiding, shipping, and attacking the enemy's commerce, which, you know, correlates with the French phrase, the guerre de course, or it's the battle fleet, or it's wars where the strategy is fleet on fleet battle. And we teach these concepts because they're traditional concepts and they're important concepts for us to understand. But the question is, do those two poles of naval strategy alone really explain how naval operational art, which is our modern phrase, it's not one they used in the Mm -hmm. 19th century, but does it really encompass everything, just those two parts? And what this book does is it, it relies on an idea that Professor Jim Bradford from Texas A&M developed in an article in 2003 that he published in the Northern Mariner, where he examined the correspondence, the writings of John Paul Jones. And he said, actually, there's this third way, what he, Bradford, called Gerdorazia, or war by raiding. And in that article, he examined what John Paul Jones wrote about it. And he didn't really examine the operational, like, did this work? Did people do this? As opposed to just Jones writing about it. And so in a way, that's what the book does. It, it examines the operational history to say, okay, did people do this? Is this Gerdorazia, this war by raiding idea, actually how operations were conducted by the U.S. Navy in the age of sail? And the book concludes, the, all the work I did, the research I did for the book concludes that, yes, this was something that naval officers did and used to forward the nation's goals and to create naval strategy in this era up till about 1840 or so. If that's how the Navy conceived of things then, that raiding was an important part of conceptualizing how a naval campaign would be constructed, both in wartime and in peacetime, then maybe that's something we ought to think about today. Maybe that's a nature of naval conflict thing that we ought to think about today and not just allow to settle 200 years ago and that's not really important or relevant to us. 
So think about it in the context of a potential contemporary tactic, or you know, there's somebody else over on Twitter uh, with a a very interesting handle, Captain Blood, and he had asked if maybe raiding is a function of the weakness of the United States Navy at that moment. That because we are conventional Navy in the late 1700s, early 1800s, certainly not the Navy of 2019, that that was the approach that was available to us. Do we see this as something that the Navy or the Marine Corps of the United States might be employing in a contemporary environment? Or is this something we w- we should know about because of potential adversarial use? Uh, I think the answer is both. Okay. I think the answer is both. So the question of you know, did the United States Navy conduct these kinds of operations because they were a weak Navy? If we examine the history, just the history that's in this book, the answer is both. Because in the American Revolution, when John Paul Jones sailed to raid Whitehaven Harbor and St. Mary's, yeah, the Continental Navy was by far the weaker power uh, and was not really going to stand up in a fleet battle against the Royal Navy. That's true. Same in the War of 1812. Yes, the United States Navy was the weaker power. But in the chapters of this book, I also examine the Navy in the quasi-war with France, where at the beginning of the war, the U.S. Navy was the weaker power because it literally was being invented. The, the Department of the Navy was formed and the first ships commissioned for the quasi-war. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the war, sure, the United States Navy was the weaker power. But within the last year of the war, last nine months or so, I guess we'd say, there were more American warships in the Caribbean, which was the theater of operations, than there were French warships. By the end of the war, the United States was the dominant of the two naval powers within the theater of conflict. And yet the United States continued to conduct these these irregular operations as part of their concept of operations, as part of their strategy for the war. So maybe not. Uh, Maybe the U.S. was the stronger power in that case, or at the very least, a peer. And then in the Barbary War, which is also examined here, the United States Navy was definitely the stronger power when compared to the Corsairs of Tripoli. And then in the the last three chapters of the book, they examine operations that were conducted during peacetime. These were counter-piracy, counter-smuggling, constabulary operations that were conducted when the United States was not at war. And so there is no opposing naval force to compare to. So even within the context of this book, the answer is yes and no. Now, many people who say, well, the American Navy was weak in this period, so therefore they resorted to these kinds of irregular operations, or or as often as brought up, they resorted to commerce raiding because they were weak. You know, that's not exactly true in this era of other navies either, though. So let's look at the Royal Navy the global maritime hegemon of the 19th century, right? The most powerful force in the world on the world's oceans. Arguably, if the United States is looking to the United States today in the 21st century is looking for a contemporary example from the 19th that is the best match possible, it's the Royal Navy. What did the Royal Navy do in the War of 1812? There was no American fleet to battle in the War of 1812. What did the Royal Navy do? Well, on the Great Lakes, they conducted the same kinds of operations the U.S. Navy did. They launched cutting out expeditions. They launched small unit raids into harbors. They conducted gunboat patrols up and down the St. Lawrence River. The raiding campaign 
uh, launched by Coburn in the Chesapeake is extensive. The rating all the way from Norfolk through Hampton, all the way north to Have de Grace, the march on Washington in and of itself is a strategic raid. There was no intention of occupying the Capitol. They marched in, they shot some stuff up, they burned down the government buildings, and they marched back out again. This was a raid. It was not an amphibious invasion to take and hold territory. So in the War of 1812, what did the more powerful force do? They conducted maritime raiding and irregular warfare. So the idea that in our contemporary world in the 21st century, the U.S. Navy is just too powerful to think about conducting these kinds of operations today. I don't think the historical comparison bears that out. And then in addition, if the United States Navy in the 21st century's opponents may conduct these kind of operations, then the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps today need to understand them, if only to be able to counter what the opponents are doing. I am no military historian, let alone a naval historian, but it would seem, you know, that what I believe is now the iconic photo of the, the Coast Guardsmen jumping on top of the submarine full of cocaine that came out, was it last week? I think it just happened. Right. That would seem to fit this model as well, right? Counter-narcotics, more of a constabulary force. So when we think naval, I always think Navy Marine Corps, but even broader than that, and maybe in its most often used approach of the Coast Guard. Yeah, when, when we say naval, and when I say naval, especially in regards to this book, I, I'm saying it with a small N, yeah. right? Meaning Navy, Marine Corps, and yes, Coast Guard. Frankly, I think the conception of, you know, a couple of years ago, I believe there were, there were a couple of think tank reports written about the national fleet, so to speak. And that ropes the Coast Guard forces in with the Navy and Marine Corps forces. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it as a national fleet of all those types of assets and services, then the British are a great example, right? The British don't have a Coast Guard in the way the United States has a Coast Guard. Those are vessels of the Royal Navy. The fact that we as a, as a government have elected to separate it into a separate service in order to create differences between Title X responsibilities and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that's fine within our governmental context. But from the outside, our Coast Guard is bigger than most navies. Mm -hmm. And I think from a, a long view of history, our Coast Guard conducts naval small n operations because constabulary missions during peacetime are the job of naval forces. They are not some separate, lesser included, unimportant thing. They are actually what navies have done for time immemorial. And this is an interesting comparison. You know, there was back, back before September 11th, there was a, a robust discussion. I remember when President Bush Jr. was initially running for office and a discussion about nation building and, and then Condoleezza Rice made the point about that that's not the appropriate use of ground forces. The appropriate use of United States ground forces is to fight and win the nation's wars. And a huge discussion at that moment, because um, we're coming out of Bosnia and Kosovo at the time, about whether peacekeeping or more constabulary-like responsibilities are something that should be trained to equally to major combat operations. And, and some pretty serious disdain in certain circles for those more peacekeeping constabulary-like functions. For ground forces, what I'm hearing you say is that that division isn't as stark if you're talking about naval power. Well, or that that division should not be as stark. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I think that in our 
modern context of naval thinking, so post-World War II, I think that description is still kind of apt. I think prior to World War II, the United States Navy and Marine Corps still considered themselves to be a peace force as well as a war force. They still considered themselves to be a constabulary force as well as a combat wartime force. I mean, look at the Yangtze patrols of the 1920s or the Navy Marine Corps involvement in the the Philippine insurrection and the Moro Wars in the Philippines. And and you see the Navy Marine Corps were doing these kinds of things. And the officers considered this part of their job. But after World War II, after entry into a world where the United States Navy was the preeminent power, the preeminent fleet power, you take that reality, you combine it with the reorganization of the Department of Defense and changes in American military culture that happen after World War II. And you see the Navy start to drift more towards army thinking in this regard, more towards the idea that, well, it's only the battles that matter. It's only the fighting that matters. And these other things are Sure, something that weaker power, when we were weaker, we used to do this sort of thing, but we don't need to now. We're going to focus on the big war. And, and the logic that's given in that kind of discussion, which is, which is a solid logic, I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't think this is valid. The logic given in those discussions is, well, if you can't win the big war, all the rest of it is useless. And, you know, there's some logic to that. The problem is, you end up with the hammer and the nail situation. If you've designed a force only for peer-on-peer, major power, nation-state war, and it doesn't do the other things, then you have one choice, and that is to hit the nail with a hammer Mm -hmm. as hard as you can every time there's a problem. And if it's not a nail, uh, you're going to have a problem. Uh, And I think, in a way, we may be seeing this in the South China Sea today, Mm, that we have... We have a potential adversary who is operating well below the threshold of nation-state war, and they're perfectly comfortable operating there, and they're figuring out the tactics and the operational procedures to do it. Meanwhile, we're arm wrestling with whether or not the Navy. I mean, I've heard I've heard a former senior leader from the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, say that the gray zone is not the U.S. Navy's business. Hmm. So some of us are still thinking along those lines, that it's only about combat and big wars. And so if that's what the Navy and Marine Corps decide, then, yeah, anybody who operates shy of that kind of threshold is going to be able to do whatever they want. We are recording this over Skype, and so apologies for any uh, wonkiness that you might hear. But let me ask you, What surprised you during this project, other than the general lack of scholarship on the topic? Were there noticeable gaps in the historical record? Were there particular insights you hadn't anticipated when you when you started looking? Well, I I think any project of this size and scope changes over time based on on those kinds of questions. Right. I think that one of the things that I was most surprised of is not actually the stuff that's missing, but the stuff that's there. You know, as a, as a historian of the early 19th century, going into what we know of as SECNAV records, which is all the correspondence that came in and out of the office of the Secretary of the Navy, it's a massive amount of correspondence. And the United States Navy is a very busy organization, even though it's small. 
even though we're talking about the age of sale. And I think it's important for, for listeners and, and readers of the book to remember that, you know, in this era, the SECNAV is also the operational head of the U.S. Navy. And so there is no chief of naval operations. There is no senior naval officer who's kind of in command of creating strategy and planning for wars. It's the SECNAV's office that does that. And so you're talking about the secretary and, you know, four, five, six clerks and any officers that drop by to give them advice or kind of running things. But the, the amount of correspondence that went through his office, you know, when I started looking at, for example, you know, the, the last two chapters of the book are about counter piracy operations off the mm -hmm. coast of Indonesia in 1832 and 38. The material that's there, you know, other historians have written maybe a paragraph about these operations, maybe a page, right? But they, they fit into larger narratives. And so they get mentioned, but they're not really studied in depth. When I went to start studying them in depth, the correspondence is all there. The detail is all there. It's kind of amazing. And it just reinforced for me the level to which American naval history still has not been studied. Mm. We tend to think that because we know the result, which is the globe-spanning U.S. Navy of the 21st century, that naval history has kind of been done. We know. We've got a couple good books on it. Yeah, sure. We, it's a settled subject. When no, it's not at all. There is lots and lots of research and history still to be written about it. So... Help us with our homework. What should we focus on during our discussion when we get together on the 23rd? Oh, wow. Interesting question. <laughs> Make my life easier for me and tell me what to do. Okay. So one potential tack to take would be to, to look at the conclusion of the book and ask, are those three broad themes that I say seem to have run throughout all of these episodes that make up the chapters, are those really valid? And do they really apply to us in a 21st century context? I think that's probably a, a good question. Frankly, I think each of the chapters offers up its own part of the thinking on naval irregular warfare mar and maritime rating. And so each of the chapters themselves could, could mm -hmm. result in, a, in an interesting conversation. And I, look, I tend to be the kind of person that in the classroom, I'm more than happy to head down a rabbit hole with my students. If they've read something and they've got interesting ideas and they want to keep talking in some direction that I wasn't planning on, I tend to follow along and just really enjoy when they engage with ideas like that and when they engage with history in a deep way like that. And I hope that there's enough here in the book that, you know, people will latch on to favorite parts, mm -hmm. but then not just have favorite stories, right? Which is, which is great, but to be able to think deeply about what that history might suggest to us today. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. So in addition to your book, if listeners want to learn more about naval irregular warfare, where should they turn? What would you recommend? Oh, interesting question. So a couple book recommendations. The first one would be if you think if you're still interested in this 19th century thing in this age of sales thing, there's a book called Swamp Sailors in the Second Seminole War. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it's by George Booker, and it's it's relatively short. It is kind of academic in its style of writing, but the Second Seminole War is is a fascinating conflict from a naval perspective. We're talking the 1830s here. We're talking Florida. The first efforts to 
survey and chart the Everglades are conducted by these naval officers and sailors and Marines because they're trying to get into the Everglades to find Seminole bands to fight, to move. The ideas of Porter in the West Indies squadron in the chapter in the book that's about the counter piracy campaign there, the Mm -hmm. idea of a a mosquito fleet putting together a, a fleet of small boats and, and small ships to go all kinds of places. Lieutenant McLaughlin, who commands in the Seminole War, adopts this idea. He builds his own little mosquito fleet for fighting along the coasts of Florida. It's a really interesting book and, and kind of mirrors some of the stuff in, in Small Boats and Daring Men in an interesting way. So I, I really like that book. In a more contemporary context and in a more interdisciplinary context. I think Josh Tallis's new book, uh, The War for Muddy Waters, does an interesting service for us. It, it examines the idea of maritime security and the concepts of naval constabulary missions through the prism of criminology theory. Hmm. And while as a historian, I read political science and theory development with a grain of salt, I really found Josh's book really interesting. And the new way of looking at maritime constabulary responsibilities based on this comparison to law enforcement uh, and the methods and theories of law enforcement was really, I actually found it really fascinating. And and it gave me a couple of interesting ideas of of ways to compare to our history as well. So that's another book I'd recommend. Okay, great. Thank you. And now our last question not related to naval irregular warfare necessarily at all, but what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Oh, that your listeners should know about. Because yeah, right now I'm reading Mary Oliver's poetry and it's got nothing to do with the Navy. That's fine. That's okay. No problem with that. Uh, the book that's on my to read list next is the new edited volume from the Naval Institute Press by Andrew Erickson and Ryan Martinson on China's maritime gray zone operations. Mm, okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a collected work. It's an edited work of essays uh, written about different elements of the People's Liberation Army Navy and the PRC's effort at gray zone operations. Now, I get a little nervous about gray zone. You know, when the label was first suggested, I wrote a piece or two for War on the Rocks saying that I I didn't know that this label was necessary or accurate. You know, gray zone is just what you do short of war that navies have always done. But I've come to the realization that whether or not I like the phrase, it's going to be used. And then, you know, defense establishment has national security establishment has adopted this. And so regardless of my feelings on it, I better engage with it. And so I've got that book on my list to read. And then another one that I just finished is Kevin Rowland's book, Naval Diplomacy in the 21st Century. Hmm. It's a Rutledge book, so it, it'll cost you an arm and a leg to buy it. So try and find it in a library, I'd suggest. But Captain Rowlands is a captain in the uh, Royal Navy and a PhD from King's College London. And it is a really fascinating look at the theory of naval diplomacy and comparison to historical examples Uh, We don't read or write enough about naval diplomacy, about the maritime elements of diplomacy. And so this book, I feel like, is a really important, though very theoretical and structured work. It's a really important book for us in the 21st century. Great. And if you aren't aware of our new History Division publication, The Legacy of American Naval Power, Reinvigorating Maritime Strategic Thought, that just came out, let me know. I'll send you a copy. 
Oh, I'd love to get it. I'm I'm aware of it, but I don't have one yet. Ah, well, then I will close up after this. I'll get your mailing address and we'll get one to you. Brilliant. Because it's it's right up your alley, I think. Yeah. So, Commander Armstrong, thanks so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at College, And follow Marine Corps University on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Byrne. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.